0: Alright, so we're going to be picking up in Romans chapter 11, but before we get there, I want to go back and remind us again of where we've been in recent months, Uh, looking back at Romans chapter 9. And when I was teaching through this section of Romans chapter 9, I told you in Romans chapter 6 that this theme would follow us all the way through the next three chapters. And now we're, we're there. We're wrapping up Romans chapter 11 today. We are going to be done with this section of scripture. But back in Romans 9, 6, it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And that was the theme that Paul was speaking to. He was addressing this uh, unspoken concern that perhaps God had forgotten about Israel, that Israel um, wasn't secure in the hands of God like the Gentiles seem to be. That they weren't uh, his and his forever. And so this theme follows all the way through. Let's look again at uh, verse 14 of Romans 9 where Paul says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Got to remember that. There is absolutely never any injustice with God. God is... Just through and through. What does that mean that God is just? All right, He's perfect. All right, He gives everything what He deserves. Good. So He gives us what we deserve, and we'll often use the word fair for that, right? Um, But fair isn't really a biblical word. Just is all throughout the Bible, and speaking of God's justice, that to those who deserve wrath, he will give wrath, right? Um, That he gives what we deserve. And um, I have this circle here, and it's kind of in the center of your page, but remember we've talked before about God's justice and how he is always a just God. He, um, maybe not. Always, I shouldn't say that, but there is never any injustice with God like we just read, right? So if we understand God's justice to be confined to this circle, then we can call anything that's outside of this circle God's injustice. Or not injustice, non-justice, rather. So God's non-justice is outside of this circle. And on your outlines, I have this other circle out here representing that non-justice. And it's separated into two different categories. Andy's spilling my coffee up here. Yeah, and his. Yeah, and his. All right, so we can separate non-justice into two categories. Um, Over here we can say injustice. And what did that verse, Romans 9, 14, tell us? Anybody? no No injustice with God, right? So God is not injust. He does not do what is wrong. However, God is merciful, right? So we can put his mercy over here. And we should thank God uh, daily for his mercy, because his mercy is outside of his justice. If he truly gave us what we deserve, being fallen, simple humans, then we would end up in hell, right? Um, Even from the, the very beginning, he gives us Mercy every day that we draw breath, because that's not at all what we deserve. We will sin against a holy and perfect God. So his mercy is distinct from his
1: justice. And remember that mercy is to not get what we deserve. Yes? But though his mercy is distinct from his justice, his mercy is never without his justice, in the sense that Mm -hmm. Christ took on what we justly deserve absolutely Yeah, Yeah, I think that's an important clarification that God is not skirting his justice by showing us mercy but it's actually through his justice we receive mercy yeah and were he doing
0: that that would be unjust, right if God just looked at us and he saw our sinful selves and the fact that we do deserve hell and he didn't do anything about it he said oh forget it you know it's whatever we're we're homies right Uh, that's not how God operates God is just and so that's why he became man, right? That's why he took that debt upon himself. He paid that price, fully upholding his justice while still showing us his mercy at the same time. All right, uh, continuing on in Romans. Again, following this same theme that um, back in six, the word of God has not failed. He has said that he would do a bunch of things and he is going to do a bunch of things. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should repent. And there is absolutely no injustice with God. Uh, Looking farther up into the chapter we'll be in this morning, in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. So once again, same kind of theme. God hasn't turned his back on Israel. God has made these promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, these promises that we've been following and, and looking at for months now, nearly... Every week, we find ourselves back in the Book of Genesis at the the Genesis, right, the beginning, the foundation of these promises, these covenants that God made with uh, the patriarchs, and we're reminded once again that He has not rejected His people. And then let's look farther up at where we were last week in verse 27 we see that he makes reference once again to this covenant that he has made with them to take away their sins. And in verse 29, where we left off last week, it says, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, that is a good thing, right? That our God doesn't change. If we had a God who changed, then we could never trust him. Um, we couldn't trust that he was at one point a good and a just and a merciful God, and that tomorrow he's going to be the same way. But he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? Uh, there is no change, no shadow of change with him. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, we see this also in Second Timothy two thirteen that if we are faithless, uh, he remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. this um, These promises are caught up within the the nature of God. Hebrews 6 talks about how God swore by himself because there is nobody greater that he could swear by. He can't say, oh, I swear on mama's grave, right? God has no mama. He is uh, a say He is without beginning, without end. And he swore by himself because he is the greatest thing to swear by. There is no injustice with God. His promises will come to pass The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now we get into verse 30, where we're picking up today. And uh, we see some, some parallelism here in verses 30, 31, and then wrapping up in verse 32. It says, for just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient. That because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Mm. Now, it would be good for us to slow down through there and to actually <coughs> look at what's going on and what he's saying, because it's kind of a, a tongue twist, or even just trying to read through that, right? Um, so who is he speaking to in those verses? Verses in verse 30 and 31. When he says you. Who is he speaking to? We got plenty of coffee out there if you guys need some coffee. <laughs> In verse thirty, who is Paul speaking to? to the he is talking to the Gentiles. Believing Gentiles. Gentiles. Yep. Believing Gentiles, yeah. How do we know that?
2: Because he's contrasting it with But now I've been shown mercy because of their disobedience. Verse thirteen. Okay,
0: yeah, we can go back to thirteen. Since thirteen, well, even before thirteen, but thirteen is very explicit, saying, "But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles, right?" And that same dialogue has been flowing throughout this whole chapter, throughout the rest of this passage, and it hasn't changed here in verse thirty. So he says, "For just as you were disobedient, so I have a chart on your hand out there, and uh, looking at this parallelism." We're gonna look at verses 30 and 31. And in verse 30, he is talking to, when he says you, he is talking to believing Gentiles. Or Gentile believers. Alright, and what is it that he says to these Gentile believers? Or what about these Gentile believers does he pull out? He says, For you once were disobedient. So he's speaking of their disobedience and he does so in the past tense, right? He said you were once disobedient. Now, who were they disobedient to? To God. You think that's a big deal or a little deal? (laughs) They were disobedient to God, right? We can't just rush past this. They disobeyed the one who created them. What did you say, Dean? Eternally punished. Yeah, that's the the just penalty that they deserve, right? That they would be eternally punished because they have sinned against an eternal God. That's why this mercy is so important. And God's justice being poured out on his son rather than on us is so important to our salvation. (coughs) All right, and then we see later on that um, though... They were disobedient because of the mercy that was shown to them. um, They also may be shown. Oh, that's I skipped a verse. Because of the mercy shown to them. um, Wow, where am I at? 30. See? It's a tongue twister, right? You look at it and my eyes just get caught up. So verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So the result is that they are shown mercy. And the reason is because of their or Israel as Andy pointed out, Israel's disobedience. And once again we've been talking about this all leading up to this all throughout chapter 11 how the disobedience of God of God's chosen people Israel has led to the acceptance and the mercy that is shown to the Gentiles, those of us who are grafted in. All right, and then we move on down to 31. And who's in view in 31 when it says these? Hasn't changed from verse 30. Israel. All right, good job. Non-believing Jews. All right, yep. It's the non-believing uh, section of Israel. Um, and Israel as a whole falls in, not as a whole, but as a majority falls into that category of unbelieving, right? It's only a remnant who are actually believing. And it says that they now are disobedient. They have been disobedient. And um, they also, this isn't explicitly said, but They also have been disobedient to God, right? We know that from the context. Um, When David sinned, he said, God against you and you only have I sinned because he realized the gravity of the sin and the fact that um, it was against God more than anybody else. Uh, And they also, the result, are shown mercy. And then here, um, because mercy was shown to Gentiles. And we see that's um, looking at 31. So these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may be shown mercy. So Gentiles are shown mercy because of the disobedience of Israel. 31 talks about how because of the mercy that is shown to the Gentiles, now... um, there's this possibility for Israel to be shown this mercy as well. And as we looked at last week, that is an absolute thing um, in the future, that all Israel will be saved. We were told that um, with absolution, that it is a certainty that Israel will come to faith in Christ. Now, when we look at this understanding of disobedience, how the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, are shown mercy because of the disobedience of the Israelites, and the Israelites have now become disobedient. How should we understand that word, disobedient? What is it talking about in that disobedience? Well,
2: the disobedience now for Israel is there, which rejection is the gospel.
0: Is that any different from the disobedience of the Gentiles in the past? No, it's the same, right?
2: (laughs) Seeking
1: their own righteousness.
0: Okay, yep. Seeking their own righteousness. Good. It's all about righteousness, right? They thought that they could achieve a a sense of uh, good standing with God by their own righteousness. That they could not follow after God in the way that he has called them to follow after God. In the Old Testament, looking forward to the Messiah, and now looking back to the Messiah who has come, and rather than putting our faith and our trust in him, putting faith and trust in um, themselves, that's what the Gentiles did in the Old Testament, right? They were concerned about Yahweh, the God of Israel. They had rejected him. And the Israelites, once Messiah had come, they had rejected the Messiah. And so when we look at disobedience, we should understand this as rejecting God and the salvation that he offers us um, by means of the Messiah. And normally when we're looking at this word, we expect to see a a certain word just for disobedience. And this isn't the typical word that we would find for it uh, in the Greek. But it's speaking of being unpersuadable, unable to convince. So they're not able to be Brought into this understanding of the Messiah because they are uh, blinded, they are darkened, they are seeking their own righteousness. And so, if that's what we should understand disobedience to mean, how should we understand mercy? If disobedience is rejecting God's salvation, what is mercy? All right.
2: You spent
0: you spot. Huh? She's got the answer. Joe you know? said accepting. What'd you say, Britt? I don't have
2: what?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Brittany gets shy and embarrassed. Um, if, yes. if the disobedience is seeking to establish your own righteousness, then the mercy is being given an alien righteousness, uh, given a righteousness outside of yourself. Yep.
0: Yeah, we have no righteousness of our own, right? All of our righteousness is filthy rags. And that's why we're in this need, in this position, to have to receive mercy. If we weren't shown mercy, we'd be stuck here with justice, right? Deserving hell. And so mercy is being given righteousness so that we can have salvation and we can be made right with God. This is the same concept we saw back in uh, chapter 11, verse 11, which says, I say then... They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be absolutely not, God forbid. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. So, once again, the Gentiles are given and shown this mercy uh, because of the disobedience of Israel. And Israel will be shown mercy um, through the mercy of the Gentiles. They will be... uh, drawn to to jealousy. They will see that mercy that Israel has with the the God of the covenant with Abraham that they were originally a part of. And they'll be uh, drawn to jealousy and all Israel will be saved. Once again, as we saw back in verse 26. Uh, Notice that in, in both of these situations, both in verse 11, then up here in verse 30 and 31, we are passive recipients of this mercy aren't we how do we see that in verse 11 what word there shows us that we are the passive recipients 11 11 yeah 11 11 how do we know that we're passive recipients there
2: so salvation has come to me.
0: All right, good. That's important, right? Not the Gentiles have gone out and they have earned salvation. No, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then in verse 30 and 31, how do we see this passive aspect in these verses? Shown
1: mercy because of their disobedience.
0: All right, so we were shown mercy. Both those words are passive, showing that um, we are the ones being acted upon. God is the one who is showing mercy. God is the one who is bringing salvation Uh, to the Gentiles and Jew alike, right? God is no respecter of persons. Jew and Gentile will um, be given equal opportunity for salvation. We see Gentiles being saved in the Old Testament. We see Jews being saved in the New Testament. Uh, But one day, all Israel will be saved. They will come to this knowledge, this recognition of their Messiah. Uh, Remember in Acts 10, when Peter gets this vision from God that um, salvation is both for Jew and Gentile. He says that God is no respecter of persons. In 1034, he says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Um, Galatians 2 or 328 says that salvation is, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free, but that salvation is available to all, right? Both Jew and Gentile. And then let's look back briefly at Romans chapter 2. In this same book, we'll see the same concept that God is no respecter of persons. Will somebody read for us Romans 2, 11 through 16? Thank you.
2: For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law, also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. the <laughs> Gentiles who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the law, law are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus.
0: Alright. There is no partiality with God, right? We are all judged um, on the, the same standard. Yes, Jeff.
2: I'm stuck on something.
0: What are you stuck on?
2: Is jealousy a sin?
0: Mm-hmm. Sometimes. <laughs> God is jealous, right? What is God jealous for? God is jealous for his glory, right? For <clears throat> our worship. With
2: the Israelites being jealous,
0: uh-huh.
2: they change.
0: Well, the Israelites as a whole have not yet come to that jealousy, right? right. But yeah. we're told that the salvation of the Gentile will draw them to jealousy, that they will look and they'll see the salvation that the Gentile has. And they'll say, okay, well that's that relationship with God that we were promised. is that a good jealousy? That's a good jealousy. God's yes.
1: righteousness. It's not, yeah,
2: it's not just
0: the, it depends on the context.
2: It's not just the Gentiles believing in the God of Abraham. It's the Gentiles believing in the God of Abraham who sent the Messiah, Israel's Messiah. And having salvation for him. I mean it's not it's not like it's sitting out in space and it's oh well you know, here's the Assyrians, blah blah blah. It's
1: Israel's Messiah that use Gentiles to do. Yeah, and it could one maybe to think of it as enticed, because they're being made jealous by the Gentiles enjoying God's covenant blessings. Mm-hmm. And in the, in evangelism, you know, we can do the same thing to people when we explain to them being made right with God, and we want them to be enticed by that. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe that could help you frame it right.
0: It's all about context, right? Is love a good thing? Maybe, right? Yeah, it depends on what you love, right? It is a good thing for me to love my wife, right? To love my kids and to love you guys. It is a bad thing for me to love rape and murder and child pornography. That's bad, right? So we need to differentiate between what it is we're talking about. Same thing goes with faith. Is faith a good thing? Well, Depends. If you're putting faith in the one true God of the Bible, then yes, that's a good thing. If you're putting faith in yourself, in your own works, in your own righteousness, that's a bad thing. So. Well, and
2: I also, whatever that passage which I remember, in the Old Testament, where it says that God's name is jealous, he's jealous of
1: the worship of his people. Yeah, that's right, then the Ten Commandments. All right,
0: Um, let's jump back up to chapter 11. And remember that when Paul, back in verse 25, he was speaking of a mystery. He says, I don't want you guys to be uninformed of this mystery. He was speaking of the Israel already had this understanding. or there was always this understanding of this salvation of Israel, right? They were looking forward to their Messiah, to the king who was going to come and establish a kingdom. Um, But it wasn't understood when this was going to take place. So the mystery was talking about how this wasn't going to take place until after the fullness of the the Gentiles had come into play. But the future of salvation was always, the future salvation of Israel was always understood. I got this quote here from Thomas Schreiner. He says that the future salvation of the Jew is imminent. That is, it can come at any moment, at any time. Um, we see that with Paul's use of now here in um, verse 31. It says that his use of now simply means that the full salvation of Israel can take place at any time. There are no other events in redemption, in redemptive history. That need to occur first. Since the Gentiles are being grafted in, the regrafting of the Jew is poised to occur, and so it's very likely that Paul used that word now in verse thirty-one when he says that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. That he expected that to take place in his lifetime. Um, That's true in our lifetime. That could very well take place in our lifetime, that these Jews would come to this recognition of their Messiah, this acceptance and embracing of God in the biblical sense. Um, There's nothing that needs to take place before that happens, just as there's nothing that needs to take place before Christ returned, before the rapture, same kind of concept of imminency.
1: Well, I was going to say it's not the same because the rapture of the church must happen first. Yes, but... So I think we've defined imminent different than Mr. Schreiner. Yeah, but he
0: <laughs> was talking about now being um, possible in that that time, in that generation. So um, yes the rapture there are that take place to first. Take place. Yes. Right. But there's nothing that has to take place before the rapture. So
1: So the rapture dead. Yes. Yeah. But, he, he doesn't believe in a rapture. I'm sure he, he worded it that way to emphasize that, uh, being all millennial. Yes. Yeah. So that would be the, the most imminent. But um,
0: this generation could be the generation that sees all Israel <clears throat> being saved. All right. Uh, going on to verse 32 in chapter 11. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. So this word for shutting up means to imprison. Um, in Galatians three twenty-two and 23, Paul says, but the scripture has shut up everybody under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Same word we have here. And same concept that we see back in Romans 3, 9 through 11, uh, where he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. That's what he's talking about, how we are shut up, we are imprisoned under sin. He says in verse 9 of chapter 3, that both Jew and Greek are under sin. He goes on to say that there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Everyone has turned aside. We are all in the same category. He spent uh, chapter 1 talking about how the Gentiles are under sin, chapter 2 how the Jews are under sin, and chapter 3 kind of wraps it up. All, everybody, Jew and Gentile, are together being shut up or imprisoned under sin. And then he goes and... Back in 11.32, he says, For God has done this, he has shut up or imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. (coughs) And here, God is um, being portrayed as the the active participant here. He's the one who is shutting us up under sin. This is within his uh, grand scheme, his his plan. It is his will to shut us up under sin. And this is one of the best answers to the... (coughs) question of theodicy, this question of whether or not, um, or how we deal with the problem of evil in our everyday life. We say that evil exists, and we say that there is a God, and people will say, well, how can there be a God if there is evil? How can there be an, an all powerful, all loving God if there is evil in this world? Well, we can look at this verse and say that God has done this so that he may show mercy. Remember that mercy is Uh, it is who God is, right? God is merciful. He has that attribute within his nature, within his being. And so in order to put that on display, in order to show mercy, he has to have some justice that needs to be served that he can step in and, and take that place for. Justice is still served, but he is showing mercy in doing so. And were there not sin in this world, then... God wouldn't be able to show mercy. That's an attribute of God that is dependent upon sin being a reality. And so that's what we have here for the reason of his shutting up all in disobedience so that he can turn around and show mercy to all. Now, maybe you guys remember last week when we were looking at verses 25 and 26, we were talking about how. In verse 25, it was clearly talking about ethnic Israel, right? It says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So that's talking about ethnic Israel, right? And then in 26, we need to understand that to Israel to be the same Israel, ethnic Israel, that so all Israel will be saved. Um, It's not proper hermeneutics. It's not good Bible study methods to go into a text and to have one understanding of one word in one verse. And then the very next word to change the understanding of that word. That just doesn't make sense. That's not how we should approach scripture. And so, looking here at verse 32, if we understand that God has shut up all in disobedience, right? Right? We've defined disobedience as not seeking God's righteousness, seeking our own righteousness, as being um, not offered this salvation. Then how should we understand this next all in verse 32? It says, for God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. We need to understand those in the, the same way. And we can get into some... Uh, messy theology if we don't have a proper understanding of that all in the second part of verse 32 that he brings or he shows all he shows mercy to all so how should we understand that aspect of God showing mercy to all any thoughts wrestle through this with me a little bit what do you think
1: well, we talked about it saying all Israel will be saved. We kind of played with that idea a little bit before, right? That might not quite be a hundred percent of every single person, but the majority is what, what we talked about.
0: Uh, I don't buy that. We talk about that as an interpretation that some people have had. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, I
0: think. I can see how they can get there from the sure. text and looking at other passages of scripture,
1: but so I'm, I'm saying I see if that's an all, then this would be an all people uh-huh. as well. So that's how I, I would say that it can't be all people of all times throughout the whole world, right? because <coughs> we know that some go hell.
0: Okay, so you're looking at the the greater context of scripture, right? Any other thoughts on that? Do we believe in universalism? No. That God shows mercy to all? Everybody? No. That was a quick no. Thank you, Andy. That was good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) For the rest of you who did not give a quick no, there's a membership meeting. after.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Jim, what do you got? Well,
2: God does show mercy to everybody, to the whole world. That doesn't mean they'll all be saved. Amen. Everybody he shows mercy to is not going to be saved. Their judgment is just postponed. It's common grace. It's common grace in this world right now, where God is withholding his wrath and his justice on this world until the time is fulfilled according to his will. But there's there's no universalism. No everybody's not People who actively, willfully, openly defy Jesus and the
1: gospel are not going to be saved. But our definition of being shown mercy throughout the text has not been common grace. It's been right. receiving the righteousness of God, salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we would do well to maintain that definition and not switch it arbitrarily.
0: Yeah.
2: Agreed.
0: We need to look at not just this verse. A lot of people will look at this verse and they'll use this verse to argue and defend universalism. Well, God shows mercy to all, right? So uh, live, drink, and be merry, right? Or eat, drink, and live. I don't know what it is. Just do whatever you want,
2: right? drink, and be merry for tomorrow to die.
0: Thank you. There we go. Right? Do whatever is right in your own eyes. Ecclesiastes. Yep. Yep. All right. So we've looked at a diagram similar to this, uh, at least in other classes. Not in this class. And just looking at the context and understanding that there is a, a greater context than just a single verse, it is always great to start looking at a context of a verse. But then we need to expound and uh, look at surrounding verses. Um, you can look at paragraphs. You can look at uh, the same chapter. And you want to look at the same book that you're working within. So looking still within Romans, you can look at the same author Um, you can get some added context by looking at um, how paul uses different words in other books look at the same um, testament is a new testament old testament there's an expounding expanding context that we need to consider when we're looking at uh, verses and trying to understand what the verse means so putting that into practice and looking at the surrounding verses for um we can see just a a little bit before in verses 22 and 23 that this can't be talking about universalism because it speaks about um, some being shown wrath, right? It says, behold that the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. So there can't be mercy for all, right? And a universal understanding. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. Um, going back even a little bit farther in chapter 10, that whole section through 14 through 17. How then can they call on him whom they have not believed? Um, and talking about the need for believing, need for preachers, and need for sending. And then verse. 17 says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of God. There is not mercy that's going to be shown to all, but um, there are going to be those who are condemned, um, just like we see in Romans 6, 22 and 23. You guys should definitely know Romans 6, 23, especially my youth group, right? Um, Romans 6, 22 says, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefits resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Um, you can expand out and you can see, again, different readings of Paul. Um, a couple I wrote down here, Galatians 6.8, Ephesians five five, Other readings of Jesus, John 3.18, talks about how we're all... Um, under sin, right? John five twenty four, But I want to look at Matthew 5, starting in verse 31. <clears throat> we'll see the same concept. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 31 through 34, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him divorce her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. Am I in the right spot? <laughs> I prepared this on Monday, so maybe it's the right spot, and I'm just not picking up what I was thinking before. All right. Whoever marries and divorces a woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is a throne. Um, yeah, that's not what I was thinking. But (laughs) we see that same concept um, all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the New Testament, that there is no universalism, right? But um, there are those who are going to be cast into hell. So going back to verse 32, um, we need to make sense of this. If all isn't speaking universally when it says that God shows mercy to all, um, how do we understand this? And looking at the immediate context talking about how God shows um, even up here how God brings the Jews and shows mercy to the to the Gentiles rather because of the Jews um, we can see that they're both of you Gentiles and Jews are being shown mercy yes
1: I think you meant John 5 maybe I did talking about the resurrections um, when Jesus said in John 5 that they will come forth out of the tombs, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment, and showing that we're not universalists. <laughs> there are people who are going to face judgment and not receive eternal life. That, was that the point, maybe? Maybe, yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. We'll go with that. Again, a good Monday was
0: a long time ago. I don't know what I was thinking. But that sounds good. Yes, Andy?
2: So, trying to find the context... And Nuance in eleven thirty two is is this not an accurate statement that it would be the verse that you're looking at, the surrounding verses, the book that it's in, the author, but also would it be the remainder of the whole scripture? Right.
0: Yeah, you look and you could expand this out yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So it would it would keep going a little, a little bit I guess. Uh-huh. like you were, like you were saying, John, right? We're mm-hmm. looking at Different fossils um, that also wrote scripture and looking for where that
0: nuance may lie. Yeah, but we don't even have to expand out that far to see the the context of what he was talking about. It was just back the couple of verses before, we see that he has both Jews and Gentiles in view. Um, And so here in verse 32. He's talking about how God has shut up both Jew and Gentile in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. That is, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles uh, as well. Remember Isaiah 49.6, where God says, it is too small a thing for me just to save Israel, but he's going to yeah. show his mercy to the nations so that he might be glorified in them as well.
1: Dean? Well, I would say it's to all whom he foreknew. Okay. Where would you get that? Yeah. Show mercy to all. All need predestined.
0: So he has shut up all in disobedience. What is that all referring to?
1: Well, our own righteousness is shut up because we're saying that it's worth nothing. And it's not going to get us anywhere. And we need to throw that away and... And
0: Jesus is the righteousness. Who is we though? So I think that all needs to mean the same thing in, in both situations. So when he says that he has shown or he has shut up or imprisoned all into disobedience, um, I think that's talking about okay, you shut up um, Jews and Gentiles alike into disobedience. Right. And then he has shown mercy to all. He has shown mercy to both Jews and Gentiles. And so if we take the second all to mean those who are elect, then that would mean that the first all wouldn't be shut up in disobedience unless they were elect, right? Maybe.
1: As in, they if they're, they're not shut up right? if they're not elect? Well, they're pretty arrogant. I have not thought about that. all the through.
0: Yeah, I think it's talking about uh, all, all groups of people, all nationalities, are um, not only imprisoned in disobedience, imprisoned in sin, but also um, mercy is available both to the Jew and the Gentile um, by way of God's design and what He is, how He has uh, chosen to uh, orchestrate history that the Jews would offer. Offer is not the right word, but they would make allowance for the Gentiles to come into salvation, just as the Gentiles would make allowance for the Jew to uh, be enticed or uh, made jealous to come into salvation in the end. Romans three twenty one through twenty four. Says whatever the law says.
2: For now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God by law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. But there is no distinction for all sin and fall short of the Lord. God being justified as gift okay. by His grace through the Jesus. God publicly God. Displayed propitiation and through faith. Uh-huh. So he's, he's covering Gentiles and he's covering the Jews in that particular. And I guess to to add distinction to what I said earlier, it's not just those who publicly deny Christ. That's that's easy to see. But it's what people believe in their hearts, right? So it's not not just those who publicly, openly um, blaspheme against Christ, it's those who, in their hearts,
0: yeah, Matthew Last 7, time. you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, right? Not everybody will come into his kingdom. Okay. So another aspect of uh, looking at this broader context is that we should give more weight to whatever is in the middle, right? Not that um, this is less authoritative, but it might not be as applicable to that verse. And so, um, yeah, well, Romans 3 will give us insight. Well, Galatians 3, Galatians 6 will give us insight. We need to get the most insight about what this verse says and what it means from its most immediate context, um, and we can gain understanding as we look out further and further. I think we're proving the point of the verses that follow. Yes. So, we need to get into these verses that follow, talking about the, the praise that Paul ascribes to God in verses 33 through 36, and this is a great section of Scripture, um, Uh, amazing doxology that that Paul has to wrap up not only chapter 11, not only chapters 9 through 11, but he's wrapping up, I believe, and commentators believe chapters 1 through 11. He is summarizing everything from the the very beginning. Again, identifying the Gentiles and the Jews both as being unbelievers, as being uh, sinful without their own righteousness in need of saving. Uh, talking about how we can't work for our salvation, but to the man who does not work but trust God, it is credited to him as righteousness, just as uh, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. And he goes throughout the whole gospel, from our condemnation to uh, our exaltation and glorification in chapter 8, which comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so he wraps it up here by saying, "Oh." the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and judgment, or wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and in unfathomable his ways. And so we have to understand, before we even get here, that uh, theology must precede doxology. That we can't get here, and we can't praise and worship God along with Paul, unless we understand this theology that has led to this praising and this worship, the fact that God offers salvation to all without showing partiality, both Jew and Gentile alike. Um, Paul has a high view of God, an incredibly high view of God uh, that has developed from the theology that he's laid out in the first 11 chapters. And so, here, when it's um, in verse 33, we begin with two exclamations. Oh, the depths of the riches both of wisdom and the knowledge of God. Um, and we see this recognition of our shortcomings and this acknowledgement of our, uh, our tendency to question uh, God, really, and to put ourselves in that judgment seat over God. Uh, I want to read this quote from J. Vernon McGee. He can, he'll give it to your heart sometimes. He says, what is the reason that the nation of Israel will be restored? So that he's looking at just the immediate context right before. But again, I think the context expands all the way back to chapter one. Um, But he says, what is the reason for, for all this chapters one through 11? Well, this is locked in the riches of the wisdom of God. My friend, let's not rest on the fact that what God is doing is wise. It is right, and it is the best that can be done. You and I have an old nature that questions God when he makes a decision. I have heard many Christians say, why are the heathen lost when they haven't heard the gospel? God has no right to condemn them. My friend, God has every right imaginable. He is God, and what he is doing is right. If you don't think he is right, your thinking is wrong. And if you don't think he is being smart, you are wrong. God is not stupid. You and I may be stupid, but God is not. Oh, how we have to recognize this. Um, God is the He is the depths and the riches both of wisdom and knowledge, right? Um, His ways are unsearchable, unfathomable, and um, This knowledge that he has is not something that we can stand in judgment over. Um, He is absolutely God. Psalm 139.6, the psalmist there recognizes the same thing. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high, and I cannot attain it. He recognizes that God is above him. We are in no position to, to question God, which we do all the time, right? Um, we think, well, why did why did God allow that to happen? Why why did this situation or this circumstance play out in the way that it did? And in doing that, we are saying that we would do it differently. That we are <coughs> wiser than than God. I think we are too quick to to jump to that and to think I would have handled it in a completely different way. But. As J. Vernon McGee says, you and I are stupid, and God is not stupid. His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Absolutely. All right, so he says, How unsearchable are his judgments, how infathomable are his ways. Um, judgments here likely has in view both God's judicial decisions, how he decides to judge, and his executive decisions, his decisions for um, sal- salvific history, the way that he decides to, uh, again, use the, the Jews' rejection to bring in the Gentiles, and use the Gentiles to entice the Jews to come in. Um, God's judgments, the way that he does things, the way that he judges, they are. Perfect, And we we're in no position to question that. We saw that back in uh, chapter 9, right? Who are you, O oh man, to, to talk back to God, to question God? Um, but God shows mercy on whom he desires, and he passes judgment on whom he desires, because he is God. He has that right. He has that prerogative. Um, how unsearchable your judgments, how unfathomable or inscrutable are your ways. We can't fully understand the, the riches and the depths of the gospel um, we could call Ada in here and I 'm sure that she could mm-hmm. articulate the gospel right intellectually what the gospel is and that's a, a beautiful thing and then we could sit here and we could talk about the uh, about infralapsarianism superlapsarianism and um, the hypostatic union, how the two natures of Christ work together, um, that he is fully God and fully man, how that just doesn't compute with us. We can talk about the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. We can try to argue about that and debate about that, and men have for centuries. will never fully understand the, the beauty of the gospel because his ways are unfathomable. They're inscrutable. They are beyond comprehension we see that uh, Paul here has an acknowledgement for the absolute sovereignty of God. Verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Once again, God is without beginning, without end. Nobody taught him what he knows. Um, And here he's quoting from Isaiah 40, um, 13, I believe. And I want to read just the surrounding verses for us, Isaiah 40:12 through 15. He's, again, great set of verses. Um, Isaiah says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? Obviously, the answer to all this is nobody, right? We are nothing. Uh, verse 14, with whom did he console? And who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Isaiah had this down, right? He had this understanding right that we are nothing. We don't do any of the wonderful, marvelous things that God does. Uh, we are in no position to stand as his counselor to seek to inform God. He knows all things. Um, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. That's cool. Um, Proverbs 24.6 talks about how for us there is wisdom in seeking an abundance of counselors, and that is good for us, but God has no need to do this. God (laughs) is God without need of anything. Um, One of my favorite passages is Psalm 50, uh, starting in verse 10 of Psalm 50. And you guys know this verse. Um, Let's listen to the next verses. Psalm 10. Or 50.10 says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. (coughs) 11, I know every bird of the mountains. How cool is that? Every single bird on every single mountain, God knows. Um, We see that again in the New Testament, that no sparrow falls without God knowing about it. How much more does he care about us? Um, I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. Now, get this. He says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that it contains. He doesn't need us, right? He's not going to call out to us and say, Hey, I'm, I'm hungry. I need something. Give me something to eat. He has no needs. Uh, and then, verse 15, he says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you, and you will honor me. That's the right relationship. God rescues us, He shows mercy to us, and we honor Him. Uh, we see that throughout all of God's whole plan of redemption, it culminates in God's glory. That whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we need to give glory to God. uh, That he is the king, eternal, immortal, visible, the only God who is to be honored and glorified forever and ever. He is the, as it says in verse, uh, here let's read 35 and 36. It says, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again, again. God doesn't ask us for food. He doesn't. He's not indebted to us. He doesn't owe us anything. He's not obligated to show us this mercy. He does so out of his goodness, right? Out of his mercy, out of his grace. And then verse thirty-six: For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That he is the source and the means and the goal of everything. That. In him all things hold together. All things consist. That he is the creator of all things. And he will be glorified in all things. That from him, through him, and to him. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, And then one last thing to note on, on that. Is that in offering glory to God. We're not adding anything to him. Right? God has absolute, total, innate, and intrinsic glory. That intrinsically he has all the glory in him that he needs however we can ascribe glory to God so there's a difference between um, intrinsic glory and ascribed glory so we will just recognize him for who he is because of his intrinsic glory Uh, yesterday the ladies were looking at Ephesians and several times throughout Ephesians it talks about to the praise of his glory so the praise is speaking of ascribing to him that glory and the glory there is speaking of his intrinsic glory because of who God is we will recognize him for who he is we will offer him praise and honor Um, we will worship him and um, ascribe him worth through that worship let's pray God we do thank you for who you are that you are worthy of all honor and praise that it is from you and through you and to you that all things come together, God. We thank you for the way that you have chosen to work in salvific history, that you have offered salvation to us Gentiles, um, that you offer salvation to the Jews, that you are no respecter of persons. God, we thank you that you are a faithful God whose promises will not be, um, they will come to pass because you are God, you are a faithful God, and all Israel will be saved. God, that's just a testament to who you are. We thank you that we can know you, that you have made us your own. You have adopted us as your own. Um, can you call us your, your sons and daughters, we can call you Abba, Father. God, pray that we would have a good time of fellowship
2: and worship this morning. Amen. Amen.